The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks everyone for joining us tonight. I'm Debbie Pry, the Artistic Programs Manager at Guildhouse. This morning, or this evening I should say, I join you from the Guildhouse office, which is in the Lion Arts Precinct in uh, Adelaide's West End on Ghana Country. I pay my respects to the traditional elders of this land, past, present and emerging, and I acknowledge the rich and ongoing creative culture of the Aboriginal people. I'm very pleased to welcome you all to our first event in the winter series of the Revision Speaker Sessions. This series of conversations is aimed at increasing connectivity during this ever-evolving time of disconnect and to offer an opportunity for artists to increase their wellbeing and to find new models of sustainability for their practice. From tonight through to Thursday night, you will hear speakers investigate the topic of remodelling our future. Conversations with curators, writers, artists and arts leaders will investigate how an industry finds momentum and collectively shape change. So I'm very pleased to introduce the panel Leadership in the Face of Change and our speakers. The session chair, Rebecca Coates, director of the Shepparton Art Museum, who has spearheaded the transition from a council-owned and operated gallery to an independent, not-for-profit governance model. And the panel, Kate McDonald, founding CEO of Agency Projects and the executive director of Dermai Arts, Aboriginal Corporation, and Numbulawa Numberindi Arts. Sebastian Goldspink, Alaska Projects founder, Wallara Gallery coordinator and 22 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art, the Art Gallery of South Australia curator. That is a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, Janice Price, president and CEO of Canada's BAMP Centre for Arts and Creativity. She boasts an incredible history of leadership within the arts, which we will no doubt get some insight into tonight. It is 3.30am in Canada, so thank you kindly, Janice, for being here at this time. It's, it's, It's such a treat for us. This is such a wonderful opportunity to hear from four incredibly dedicated organisational and curatorial leaders and gain insights into how they've developed their leading voices. So Rebecca, I'd love to express my thanks to you for leading this session and hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm joining you from uh, Melbourne, from the lands of the peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. And I'm normally working in Shepparton in north-central Victoria. It's about two hours and a bit from Melbourne on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Uh, However, we in Victoria are in lockdown again. So feel our pain. We are very fortunate that most of us are starting to have the jab. But, you know, it is, um, I think this is our fourth lockdown. So I preface that with, I hope you're all well wherever you are where you're joining us, and uh, it's great to be talking about art and artists and leadership and things that inspire us. So I'd particularly like to welcome any and all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who might be listening either tonight or subsequently when they tune in and listen. I think it's a really fitting topic to be talking about in this climate, and as I said, this is our fourth lockdown, and I think leaders and leadership and what we can all do is something that I'm certainly reflecting on more than ever. Uh, in this context, and I won't make any comments about leaders and leadership in other realms, but that's something that obviously we're all thinking very, very hard about at the same time. So I'm going to pull it right back to our arts and cultural space. 
and the way that we can connect, as you've said, Debbie, which I think is so important in times of uncertainty and times of change. We've got three really fabulous speakers. Janice, as we've said, bravo for joining us in the middle of the night. And Sebastian, I've talked, we, we said a little, um, I, I used to go very regularly to Alaska Projects. It was our go-to place on the way to the playground and the kids thought it was completely normal to go into a car park uh, and look at art in a mechanics space. Cade, I think last time we saw each other was either Adelaide for the for Tarnandi or perhaps it was in Shepparton, but these conversations interweave. And, and, and just going back to Janice, Janice, I think you win the prize for the most fabulous setting of arts and cultural institution in geographic location. Though I have to say Shepparton's pretty special too. <laughs> so tonight we've got a great chance to hear from some about some really interesting projects from the people that actually envisage them and are, are seeing them through and, and making them the, the institutions and the organisations and the experiences that they are. I've got a few questions. We'll bat it around a little bit. We're really looking forward to sharing the space with all of you. It's not a talking heads space, but I think it's very good that um, for each of us to introduce where we are, what we do, uh, what makes us special. And I think just a little bit about, you know, what this leadership space is in the context in which we're working. Just a very little bit about the sort of big changes. And I think when we talk about each of the three of us, some of the organisations are very established and have been active and are growing for a very long period of time. Others played a really pivotal role and have spearheaded a whole range of thinkings and others are sustained and deep and actually permeate across. I would suggest looking at Cade on my screen you know, whole different series of, of networks and constellations, if you want. But as Debbie said, just very quickly before we start, where I'm coming from is probably I'm reflecting on this topic at the most interesting and challenging period in, in my institution's history. We have transitioned from council-owned and operated. The work that we're doing to move towards a $50 million new museum is like a greenfields. You know, it's where we've completely shifted and are setting something up. We're working in a COVID context to try and present opening inaugural programs in a new building that has never actually been activated to the public previously. So what could go wrong? Um, it won't. I work with an amazing team, but I think, you know, leadership is something that I've reflected a lot about in this last particularly 14 months. So with that, Janice, I'm going to throw it to you. Tell us a little about where you are, the organisation that you work with, and what this idea of leadership, I think, in this context means for you. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, everyone. Um, good morning slash good evening um, <clears throat> from beautiful Banff. Um, I am grateful to share with you that I'm coming to you this evening from Treaty 7 territory on the side of Sleeping Buffalo Mountain in beautiful Banff, Alberta, and it is the traditional home of the Stony Nakoda, Blackfoot, and Sutina nations. And Banff Center is an almost 90-year-old organization, and it started with a single program in drama as an extension program of um, the University of Alberta, the province we're located in here in Canada, um, and has grown to be both our strength and our challenge, and we learned a lot, obviously, because of COVID, about the nature of our multi-arts organization. So we span everything from visual arts, literary arts, opera, music, jazz, dance, theater, 
contemporary songwriting, film, uh, every art form. I do find when I speak with people from around the world, one of the things they do know about BAMP Center is our world-renowned traveling BAMP Center Mountain Film and Book Festival. So for, so for the adventure uh, outdoor uh, film buffs in the room, that, that may be your connection with BAMP Center. I think the multi-art na- nature, um, I've said to some people, and I lived through the terrible days, I was working at Lincoln Center on September 11th and, of 2001, and I thought that would be the biggest leadership challenge I would ever face in my career. And I probably had about a 25-year career by the time I was there. So COVID has topped that, both you know, tragic instances of loss of life, but I will say, particularly having to get back up on our feet so quickly and having all the leadership. I was very lucky. I had the late, great Beverly Sales opera star as my the chair of my board. But together, we really had to work. And I was so inspired by the fact that post 9-11 in New York City, the arts was seen as central to the recovery. So the notion of resilience and the resilience of a city, urban centers, and how they are so deeply connected to the arts as part of recovery. And then I was recruited back to my original home of Canada after a decade in the United States, in New York, and then Philadelphia. And one of the reasons, one of the founding um, motivations for the Luminato Festival in Toronto um, was the founders recruited me back to start an arts festival, partly to aid with the recovery from SARS. And Canada was one of the few countries in the world, actually, we're such an international country, um, as you know, where um, we actually did experience um, deaths from SARS and travel warnings, nothing like COVID, obviously. So I feel like this notion of the arts as resilience and the arts as recovery mechanisms is something I've had a lot of experience with um, in my career, unfortunately, for better or worse. So here at SPAM Center, within the space of one week and a half, we laid off 75% of our over 500 staff. We went from being a $75 million organization in Canadian dollars to a $35 million organization, where we still are, and obviously rebuilding, moved our programs online. But, you know, we're, I'm sure we'll all have the same stories, and then I'll stop, Rebecca. What are the silver linings? We learned by moving so many of our programs online that we actually, much as the power of this place is so, so singular to Banff Center and to being in Banff and the way we nurture artists and care for artists, we learned a lot and we were forced to move online in a way that I don't know that we would have done otherwise. And we've learned that we're reaching people in ways that mean we will continue to do some of that online work. And I'm sure we're all looking at these so-called hybrid models now. Um, And we definitely are reaching um, so many incredible Indigenous leadership folks, um, Indigenous artists. One of the reasons I agreed to get up at 3.30 in the morning, we had a dance choreography workshop online, and we had an Australian participant who joined us at 3.30 in the morning, her time, every day for a week. 
So I thought I had to pay it back to Australia and do the same. And that's an artist who said, I've longed to come to Banff. I've wanted to participate in the Banff Centre program. I, I would never have been able to do so except for this online program. So I think we're learning, you know, where can we capture the things that we've learned um, about how to reach more people uh, during this unfortunate, dreadful time. That is fantastic. And I think probably um, it resonates with something I think we've all found, which is in a way the world has got smaller because, you know, I'm as close to you in Banff as I am, ironically, to my next door neighbour because the only way I can see them, you know, often is via Zoom or, you know, some sort. So I think the world is this sort of sense of push-pull is really interesting and I think thinking through that and working with really great teams to do that is is one of the really interesting opportunities if you want silver linings that that we're probably all experiencing. We also um, took that that some of you may have taken um, in December we created a program we're known particularly for self-directed artist residency programs as a big part of what we do and we created a program where 15 artists were given uh, funds to create art at home. So we called it uh, Banff Center Artists in Residence in Residence. So in their own homes um, and the same artists that we had selected who without COVID would have been here on our campus, we went back to them and we gave them much needed funds to develop a work, to share with each other and to have some experience of, of an artist residency, albeit virtually. Fantastic. Thank you. And there are probably three things in that, if not more, that I want to touch on, come back to. But I'm just going to, I'm going to go to Sebastian because, Sebastian, I, I think we could talk about Alaska and, you know, that idea of audience and accidental audience as well. But I'm really intrigued to know, you know, you are the next curator for the, for the Adelaide Biennial. And I just would love to know how is all of what you're hearing here and everything we're living and working through informing or impacting how you think about curating, how you work with artists, what we need to feed the soul and what an exhibition looks like in this context. Yeah, thanks so much. It, I mean, this is all that I'm thinking about. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I'm, I'm proud to acknowledge that I'm, on, um, I'm sort of on the, on the border here of uh, Gadigal and Virabirigal land uh, here in uh, Sydney and also uh, acknowledging my ancestors, the Buramadigal people, just to the west of where I am. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a, and I really appreciated um, a lot of Janice's points there, particularly around um, resilience and, and also to uh, um, around potential kind of silver linings. Um, it's, it's interesting for me hearing from, you know, someone like, like Janice, who's a, you know, gold star leader. And, and for, for someone like myself, I guess, is a, an emerging leader. It's been a, you know, an interesting time because I've really been able to look to, you know, the leaders kind of around me and, and, and sort of, um, you know, see, see their kind of strategies. What's been interesting for me, um, curating my first biennial um, uh, for, for Adelaide, has been this kind of proposition in this particular time. So, um, um, you know, if I'd had this experience four years ago, it would have been a very different uh, kind of experience. And one of the most interesting aspects of it has been that that inability to kind of travel, that inability to sort of physically meet up with artists. And I'm, I'm someone as a curator 
who really has, you know, built their kind of reputation on that kind of connectedness and, 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 and working with artists very closely, like in close kind of proximity. I think that um, when we talk about resilience, I think artists are exemplars of resilience. You know, I think that they just embody um, all the kind of great attributes of uh, resilience in, in their sort of everyday practice. I think that um, artists are the, you know, canaries in the coal mine of culture. You know, is something that I often attribute to them. I think they're in some ways kind of first responders to everything that's happening in the world from like a, a cultural kind of perspective. And it's been amazing to sort of, and, and a privilege, I must say, to, to, to talk to artists during this period and try and develop works when we're sort of disconnected from each other. Um, many of the artists that I was talking to are we're in Melbourne, you know, where, where you are right now, and um, um, uh, shut off. I was talking to an artist earlier tonight who's um, who uh, was a, a close contact of somebody there in full kind of lockdown and isolation and talking through that kind of, you know, psychic uh, landscape. The other thing that's interesting at a meta level is creating a biennial in this kind of period. It's the obvious kind of elephant in the room. How do you create like a major body of work that completely ignores this phenomenon versus how do you create a major body of work that isn't all about that particular phenomenon? I mean, you know, no one needs to see a show that says like COVID is bad. We're all aware of it. But what I think has been amazing about this time and in reference to Janice's idea of, of silver linings is I think that there's been a real kind of rationalization of importance you know I think at a personal level at an artistic level I think we've all had those periods of kind of reflection where we've sort of taken stock of things and gone right well what's fundamentally important you know what's fundamentally important to me when um yeah when when the potentiality of everything being taken away from you being able to see your family all those kind of things you really get down to um, a really kind of rational kind of taught idea. And I think I think the leadership response has been incredible. I've, I've talked to a few, you know, sort of, you know, I know we're not meant to mention uh, politicians, but I've, I've spoke to some of them during this period and other kind of leaders within the arts and the fields. And the, the universal thing that comes back to me, of course, is that there's no playbook for this time. There's no sort of collective wisdom for this time. We've been through crises before, like Janice mentioning 9-11, Australia's had its own kind of crises with bushfires and things like that. But the scale of this crisis is unprecedented, you know, in, in my kind of mind. So I think that obviously, you know, difficult times, but also to inspiring times, because I think there's a real kind of narrowing of kind of focus. I also feel that Right before COVID, like right before COVID hit, we were at the, 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 the maximalist kind of thing where everything was about quantity and numbers and how many followers and how many people are at the opening. And I think this period has been this wonderful kind of return to this idea of things being smaller but deeper rather than wider and shallower. I think that's a really good point. And the way that I've been thinking about it is it's almost as if there's a return to community in a sort of immediate, like almost like a neighbourhood community aspect because particularly if you're in a five-kilometre zone, that is your neighbourhood, you know. So is there something in that that we've lost in capital cities or big cities? I think regional centres do this really well. Is there something that we can learn or that we need in that that we that we can keep 
you know, take with us. I don't know. I, I think that's you've hit a couple of really good things on the head on that one. In our longer lockdown, the thing, I realised how much time I spent going into our collection store when I was really sick of administration, which is quite often, I have to say, and how much I really valued working with and talking to artists. And so I don't know what everyone else did, but I started ringing one person a day because I was so sick of Zoom too. But I want, I desperately wanted that contact. So I just call a friend, you know, and just to chat, see how they were. I said, it's like having a cup of coffee. You know, it's the, it's the what did he call it? The water um, cooler conversations. So I think that that sense of community or the sense of connectedness or whatever, you know, the sort of, if we can take that, I think that's a really interesting point. Cade, I'm thinking of you, as I said, I think we last saw each other either at the most unbelievably spectacular Tarnandi, which is, um, has lodged in my visual memory as feeding the soul for quite some time after that. But I've been thinking of you, you know, after our conversations in Shepparton, because, you know, so much of the work you were doing subsequent to that was actually international, working with partners and collaborating, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about agency and how you're managing to work in this context and, you know, where you're charting your course. But tell us about, you know, as we've said, the world has shrunk, but our need through the arts and cultural space to connect and to do something in a meaningful way, whether it's as a maker or whether it's as a participant and a professional or whether it's just an enjoyer and I call it very informed audiences we need that more than ever so it's a reflection of us it's a reflection of our culture and things that we value how are you thinking about this in the work that you're doing particularly with agency and these you know big collaborations in this particular context thanks Rebecca I mean there's so many things that Janice and Sebastian said that resonate really well in terms of community, in terms of the world getting bigger or even smaller, depending on how you look at it. I mean, I'd, I'd firstly like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which we all meet, including the First Nations people of where Janice is based in Canada and any Indigenous uh, people present in, in this talk or in the who want to watch it later in the recording. It's interesting because I, we were, and I still am working on a number of quite substantial international projects, um, large curated exhibitions with the Kluge Room Museum in Virginia that are scheduled to be touring for five years across North America. And a lot of those situations have had to change, as many things have. But in some ways I feel more connected to that project now than I ever was um, because those meetings relied on 14-hour flights and lots of connections to get to the Kluge Road to have conversations, whereas now they're instantaneous. And as you said, Rebecca, it doesn't matter if you're my neighbour or, or if you're in Virginia, we're kind of there, we're kind of together. But I, I also want to acknowledge that, you know, in some ways that has gotten smaller and more accessible, but one thing we're working a lot with in remote communities in, in remote parts of Australia is the digital divide has actually gotten worse. It was already quite bad before COVID. It has sort of amplified everything. Um, it's amplified the notion of community, of being connected, of, of loneliness. But in, in remote Indigenous communities, it's really amplified that sort of divide of basic forms of communication. I mean, this uh, forum that we're in now is, is kind of easy for us to participate in, to record, to watch again later. But often those things are taken for granted in terms of just simple things like the MBM, but also just the idea of navigating or that English is a presumed first language 
you know, so we're working with a lot of different art centres across the space and, and also a number of really large tech organisations, international organisations that are helping us explore sort of prototypes that help bridge that divide a little bit. So it's a it's kind of a work in progress, but, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because as soon as COVID hit, that notion of community really resonated because I was talking to people on a daily basis who were living in remote parts of Australia. And the first thing they did is shut themselves down and took the agency of locking themselves back into their traditional homelands. And I think it was a remarkable sense of leadership that I witnessed firsthand and watched as a lot of the people that I work with literally shut their communities down and, you know, work with just their family groups or their immediate regions. And you know, every time I pre-COVID or even now when I can travel and I visit communities, which I do on a regular basis when I can travel, is that notion of community, that notion of walking around and seeing people at dusk walking around together and having a chat. And you sort of get a glimpse of it now, Rebecca, now that we're locked into our five kilometres and sort of everyone's walking around. And you, get, you kind of get a sense of hope that there is a, a small niche community within our communities in these metropolitan mega cities like Melbourne. And then you know, when I first moved back from Arnhem Land, I struggled to find a community in Melbourne. You know, I felt more lonely than I'd ever felt before in a city of 5 million people. And now in this, in COVID, in the five kilometre lockdown, I know it's a devastating time for many people and businesses and health and things, but there is a sort of a, a silver lining in that respect that I can sort of see synergies with uh, remote communities or regional communities that in, arguably know how to do that a bit better. Um, or know how to connect a bit better. So, you know, for us, agency came about right in the middle of the pandemic. Um, I'd been working with remote communities for many, many years, and I was approached by a number of leaders and a board of Indigenous um, advisors and, and, and to, to set up agency uh, as a not-for-profit Indigenous-governed organisation of which we submitted our applications to the federal government on the 16th of March, and then it all went crazy. And I parked that idea for, for many years, but we, we ended up getting supported by philanthropic and government. And, and since then, we've worked with, quite closely with Art Gallery South Australia and helped produce the Tanandi Art Fair last year. We've got a series of publication projects with international um, institutions, including the Met, the Ontario Art Gallery and the Hood, where as active institutions in North America that have Australian Indigenous works in their collections, we wanted to maintain that relationship. We wanted to maintain that sort of bridge and not let that sort of momentum of wanting to engage with international Indigenous audiences and, and, and you know, conversations. So we, we're working with Maya Nuku from the Met, uh, Wanda Nanabush from Ontario and Jamie Powell, who will write and interview um, Manuela Munungal from Yakala, uh, Katie West and uh, Sonia Farura. So it's sort of this idea of we can do it digitally really easy and have these conversations and, and, and Janice is with us now, which is fantastic, but I also think that printing or cementing those relationships a little bit stronger in the form of publications or in the form of ongoing exhibitions is really important so we don't lose those connections of international broader communities. So, you know, it's been a really interesting time. I mean, I think in some ways because we're quite young as an organisation, we we're, were able to sort of change and kind of invent ourselves as we went along. So we've positioned ourselves really well in the digital space with partners like Google Creative Lab and um, Indigenous remote communities who want to be a part of this. But we've also been able to go to sort of, 
you know, different exhibiting models like um, publications, international publications, and we've also started and supported a lot of communities that wanted to continue a sort of residency program back into remote Indigenous communities. So that's currently digital, but with the idea of that being sort of opening up a little bit more in some ways. Some of these communities and the leaders in places like Pepper Minardi want artists to come and visit them once things settle a little bit and once things are a little bit more stable. So of each of the three of you, what I'm hearing, and I think this probably resonates with a lot of us, you know, artists are incredibly creative. They have always found interesting approaches to complicated and sometimes difficult moments in time. You know, that that's the nature of, I think, probably the reason why we a lot of us either work with artists or involved in this space, you know, and it's that process of inquiry, the working through things, the constant surprise, and the sort of glorious joy and excitement that can come through this process, as well as it's hard, you know. But I think one of the really challenging things um, in this space, and I'd be really interested to hear from the three of you, is that two parts. One is particularly in a period of unprecedented, as you said, Sebastian, and it really is. I mean, the, the closest that I could think of it would be the plague in the sort of 1400s. You know, it's like what are the big things that mark culture and civilization? And I think we're living and working through one. As leaders, each of us puts a huge amount of time, thinking, effort and resources, our own resources, into supporting and fostering the teams that we work with. I'd love to know a little bit about how you're charting that course and I'd also love to know a little bit about how you're looking after yourselves. What are you doing that feeds your soul or that renews? As I said, I look at art to feed my soul. I need injections or I I think probably go a little troppo, you know, and I think in this time I didn't realise how much that made a difference. So I'd love to know, A, about how you're working with your teams and, you know, we know that different generations or different ages are dealing differently with this period of intense change. I think we've seen amazing leadership in the period of lockdown and I think this this 2021 for us is a long haul and, you know, in Australia we, uh, it's, we're not going to come out of it anytime fast. So it's like a marathon race, really. How do we sustain that? support and nurture. Rebecca, you were describing all the different uh, titles or ways that we describe ourselves within this community. And for many years, I've uh, resorted to arts enabler as uh, kind of the title that I think best describes so many of us who are in the administrative function in our field. You know, how are we charting the course? Uh, um, We had an additional quirk here in Banff because um, I also worked for um, five years at the Stratford Festival in in Canada, in Ontario. Um, And again, massive arts organization in a small community of uh, 25,000 people where, you know, you couldn't pick up your dry cleaning without someone who owned a bed and breakfast asking you how ticket sales were, Um, you know, so you're kind of ever present. It's quite different here at Bath where a very large organization in a community of only 8,000 people, but the primary economic driver, even though Banff Center is the third largest employer in our region, is tourism. So our immediate adaptation and reaction really was very much impacted by the fact we're in Canada's first national park, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and the, the park was closed 
for non-residents for about two months. Like you literally had to show proof that you lived in Banff to a police officer as you got off the highway if you left Banff even to go shopping or do anything. Um, so there was a real, yeah, serious lockdown mentality. But 80% of the residents of the town of Banff were suddenly unemployed. And this is a community that actually traditionally has zero residential vacancy, 100% employment. So it was just particularly shocking to this community. So in the midst of that, you know, I laid off, you know, 400 of my 550 staff and put them out into the community where you live as a community of 8,000 people, somewhere where you see your neighbors all the time, apropos the conversations about neighborhoods. So we did a few things. We we started hosting far more frequent meetings with both our laid off teams, because we knew many of them, we would be bringing back as soon as we could bring them back. And those who had stayed, our kind of skeleton staff that we kept in place. Um, and we were holding weekly town halls, updating them on our status, being totally transparent, sharing all our budget information, telling them about our conversations with our board. So we kept very much in touch. And then out of our staff dining area, because we also do conferences and have hospitality here at BAMP Center and many restaurants, and we have quite a, a robust staff dining area, we're now up to today over 30,000 free meals that we have served to current and laid off staff. So we basically said to everyone, just come three times a day and just take food. It was obviously all you had to line up, be masked, bring your container, takeout containers, et cetera. But we we just kept feeding our teams and trying and we guided them, of course, to all the government supports and, and that type of thing. But I mean, moving to yourself, I mean, um, two things. I We have a 42-acre campus with over 20 buildings dedicated to different kinds of arts. We did something that a lot of people are doing. We took advantage of the fact that we were forced to be closed and um, construction wasn't shut down. So we actually did a lot of renovations and restoration and revitalization of our campus facilities because a lot of our buildings are very old. Um, and there was government funding to inspire infrastructure investment. And so we took advantage of that. And we did a lot of work around our buildings, especially our visual arts building, which was um, in a little bit of disrepair. Um, and, uh, but uh, yeah, I walked around this campus and yeah, I would just cry. I mean, I'm used to seeing it completely bustling with artists dancers meeting with musicians, filmmakers meeting with visual artists, uh, all of our facilities busy and performances happening and uh, out every night at performances on campus. And it was like a ghost town. And it was, it, yeah, it was very, you know, psychologically devastating. I also describe myself as an early adopter of COVID because in April of 2020, I actually contracted COVID. And I was very sick for a month. I wasn't hospitalized, thank God. 
and, uh, you know, was immobilized in bed, so ill. So I came back telling everyone, do not get this. It's nasty. It's really horrible. So I also, at that critical moment in the life of my organization, um, was very ill myself and uh, then had to come back and recover from that. So it took me four months to get my sense of taste and smell back, by the way. Yeah. So that was not fun. So yeah, it's been a very tough year, but I think just continually talking to our staff and then you'd go for a walk and you come across people walking in the mountains and you ask them how they're doing. And some of them had found other jobs and some are waiting to be called back to BAMP Center, but you have to, you can't hide away. You have to confront that, especially in such a small community as ours. That's amazing. And I think I'm so pleased to hear that you've got your sense of taste and smell back <laughs> it's a it's a pretty lethal thing so you know we are very blessed to have you with us here tonight Cade and Sebastian any thoughts from you how, how you've managed that I think this connectedness I mean we did a similar similar thing with our communications to our immediate community and got much more feedback than we've ever had before that the tone was right you know that that um that, that people valued it and that, and that people responded. So, you know, that was interesting that it took something like this to get that sort of conversation back. But, you know, the, the two points, how are you working with teams? How are you, you know, particularly, Kate, you know, I, I watched the communications that went out to the Aboriginal community in Shepparton and I was super impressed. You know, we knew that that was an, a community that, had the you know potential with health issues of being really at risk and the emerging and the existing leaders were unbelievable in their messaging to different ages and stages and people and I I just sort of was just fabulously not surprised but really thrilled so you know we are seeing this but I think it does also it takes a toll observations or thoughts from your perspective in 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 your world i think i was so impressed watching you know there's 120 remote indigenous art centers registered with the indigenous visual arts industry support program in the federal government and there's probably about three or four times a year where those people can get together like the darwin aboriginal art fair or the national indigenous art awards and everyone's so busy that they don't catch up you know, to watch weekly Zoom meetings of Indigenous leaders come together like this in groups of 50 to 80 people on screen, catching up on a weekly basis was actually a remarkable thing to see. You know, it was sort of, it created this dynamic community, national community that really could talk to each other about mechanisms and tools and, and, and opportunities that they could collaborate on that could sustain production or momentum. I mean, the other thing that was really interesting to watch is, you know, Indigenous art centres are doing more than just producing art. And that ability at the time to redefine and send a message to government who, you know, and, and I must say, Sebastian mentioned it earlier, that certain parts of government that listened really well, um, you know, no one had had a rule book on this. But we were fortunate that certain parts of government really listened to that collective of people who had paused this notion of supply and demand that had sometimes and for certain art centres overshadowed 
their capacity to really look at the the deep kind of requirements of going back on country or intergenerational learning because they'd just been making art, you know, selling it and making art and selling it. And there was a huge demand for that. But when that market paused for a moment, people had this opportunity to really look at going back to country, going back to intergenerational learning, to sort of cultural maintenance initiatives. And it was really a remarkable thing to see happen so quickly. It's like, oh, this isn't, you know, our livelihood is not over. It's this is, you know, this is, you know, we can go and do things that we've wanted to do for a long time or always have done. And now we've got a bit more time or a bit more pause to go and do those things. So, you know, it was really interesting. From my perspective, you know, I sat in on a talk last night with Deakin University and there were some students from Deakin in the Arts and Cultural Management Program who said that, I think, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, like pre-COVID, the badge of being so busy was was highly right, yeah. not you know it was like I'm so busy especially in the arts management sector it's like mm. can we just unpack and get rid of that badge I mean some of us might feel now that 2021 is like fitting in two years into one and we're kind of flat out and I think the key is to try and sort of manage that a little bit better personally I think it's sort of like don't get caught into that trying to squeeze two years into one and really kind of listening to some of those key elements. I mean, my board, Hannah Presley, who's on our board, who was really generous and said to me when I could, she said the first thing you've got to do is go back out on country and go and re-engage with why we do what we do in agency. And so I was instructed to go back to Arnhem Land for five weeks, which was fantastic at the start of this year. And it really was an important thing for me to sort of get out of my office in Collingwood and you know go back out to those those places and those open spaces and the people that I've sat with for many years and who have instructed us to be in the position that we're in as an Indigenous organisation in, in a big city you know and so that was really helpful. I mean we were also quite fortunate we moved into the Collingwood Yards just as it mm. all happened and Collingwood Yards kind of had a bit of a false start but now it's really starting to show it's the, the sort of remarkable opportunities and collaborations that exist. And so I've landed, fortunately, in a in a lovely community post-pandemic or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it now. So I don't, you know, Rebecca, I guess it's like holding on to those things that you learned and not getting complacent and falling back into the, the curse of arts management, which is the badge of busyness, you know, that um, we have to sort of shake off a little bit. Or slow down time or do something. Let's fight that time factor. Sebastian, I'm going to just finish with you and then I'm going to open it up to questions. But I did just think, you know, and you're right, both of you, you know, we have received some extraordinary support and, you know, we have been very fortunate in Australia, I think, with some of the, you know, financial support through various avenues. But there's no doubt that for a lot of people, and we know particularly with our artists, you know, a lot of them are contractors who weren't eligible to get JobKeeper or JobSeeker, uh, you know, and I think that's been very difficult. So being creative, thinking about how we can find ways to either continue to ensure that those people we'd engaged were able to do what they do but do it differently. How, just a, just a quick observation of how you've seen that and what, what you've taken or what, you know, a bit like slowing down time. Has there been one take-home or one thing that you'd like to get, grab from that that you'll keep going with for yourself and your own practice? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think what, what's sort of previously been said about that idea of, uh, you know, um, feeling a sort of sense of change or a sense of difference and having a great kind of desire to hold on to that into the future. For me, it was all about that slowing thing down and taking my time with conversations with artists, taking time to ask about things beside the immediate kind of project. I mean, historically before that, you know, I'm sort of being on my best behaviour on the Zoom, but normally I talk like a million miles an hour <laughs> and it's like a thousand ideas and I'm like da, 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 da. but really actually like taking time to check in with people about you know how their family were how's everything you know all, all of those kind of things that I normally wouldn't necessarily start a conversation with and the ironic thing is that by slowing things down and having those kind of longer kind of chats or more kind of detailed kind of chats about everything around just the the making of art everything still got done everything still was achieved you know, it, it all it all still kind of worked out. All the kind of timelines that I needed to meet were met. They were just done in a calmer, slower kind of way. So ideally hope that I can, you know, continue that into the, into the future. The other thing I was really conscious of and sort of provided some sort of sense of solidarity, I think, for myself with artists was that how much the larger kind of art world is so much a part of artists' sort of social life and, and you know, they're kind of, you know, and, and for me as someone working in art, I realised that, you know, I, I'm used to sort of being out like three, four nights a week, going to openings, meeting artists, talking to artists. And for all of us, that was all taken away. And we've been on this train, you know, I've been doing that for 20 years, you know, and all of a sudden that kind of direct connection and that kind of community kind of connection was taken away. And hopefully, you know, I, I know for myself, but hopefully for the larger community, you know, there was a sense of realising the sort of importance of that. And and, and and I hope without being sort of hippy-dippy, like a sort of a general sense of kindness and calmness a little bit more than, than what was previously. Because a similar kind of thing, I, I really, that moment right before COVID materialised in the world, we were at our kind of, I don't know, most frenetic and ruthless, it mm. felt to me, you know, and having a sense that there is an alternative to that, that sometimes, you know, by going slower, you know, having a deeper kind of approach to things, um, everything still gets done. Everything still gets achieved. It just gets achieved in a, in a, in a, different, a different manner. Okay, so I'm hearing time and I'm hearing be kind and I'm hearing a bit of keep communicating as well. And I think we could go on, but I'm going to throw it to you, Debbie, because you know this very well, this process of asking questions. So I'm handing over. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you to all the speakers for such a rich and meaningful conversation. And I'd love to open it up to the audience to see if um, any of our community have some questions. And I would like to, I see one coming through, but I'm going to veto it and I'm going to quickly ask my own question <laughs> because, uh, Sebastian, you mentioned there's no playbook for this time, but, you know, we often ask artists who, are they inspired by and where are they getting their ideas from but we don't really ask arts managers so from a really selfish point of view I'm really fascinated to know who has inspired the four of you throughout your career to propel forward who have you seen as um, creative thinkers and um, good leaders uh, in your own trajectory of your career and I open that to, to, to the four of you if you don't mind. Let's go with Canada. Because we're very kind in Australia. We're really well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> very generous. Oh, my gosh. So, so, so many. Um, I, I can't even pick some favorites. Um, we have an amazing young opera creator, uh, 
artistic director here in Canada um, called Joel Ivany, who's actually our head of opera programs at BAMP Center, who's doing um, some amazing work. You may have read about something called the Messiah Complex around the holiday season, where he took Indigenous voices because of having been on our campus and met with our head of Indigenous arts, and they together created a whole new Messiah using Indigenous stories and Indigenous voices. That was inspiring, but he reinvents opera. His program's called Opera for the 21st Century, but he's so respectful of the art form. I've been really inspired my entire career by Mark Morris, not a Canadian artist, but um, an, uh, an American uh, choreographer that I'm sure you all know. Um, and I've been watching carefully what the Mark Morris Dance Group has been doing during COVID. And the capacity of Mark, you know, in his 60s, um, who was always a, an inventor and a reinventor, to pivot his company to online and create new works and have conversations with other artists um, and use the medium to stay in touch. Um, I really respected and I admired a lot. I also obviously really, really admire his work. Um, but yeah, gosh, there's uh, just so many. And as I said, our, our breadth of disciplines is so broad here at BAMP Center that I could pick one um, really, you know, from, from every discipline. Uh, the visual artists who've created here and gone on to do amazing works and tour shows around the world. I just feel really, really lucky. But I think back to what Rebecca was saying, that's what's missing right now for me. That's what, where the energy comes from. I can walk out my door to this 42-acre campus and there's young people and artists in training and mature artists in residence and artists collaborating. And that's been the really hard part. I'm really, really missing that a lot. We need that energy for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. It's an energy, isn't it? Sebastian and Kay, Sebastian, tell us thoughts from you. Right now, the leader that's um, most inspiring me is probably Janice. I mean, it's been incredible hearing Janice's story. Um, you know, the scale of that is is incredible. Uh, I mean, I, I, I feel like there's, there's there's been lots of amazing uh, people. So without you know singling out people, I think I think the the, the the core kind of thing is like amazing kind of bravery in, in, in the face of, of adversity. And I, I think about like a historic example, um, you know, in, in Australia, going back to a previous pandemic, like I, I'm always reminded by Neil Blewett, the Australian um, um, politician who was the, the, the health minister during the um, AIDS HIV crisis mm -hmm. and the incredible story of him as a, uh, a closeted gay man you know finding himself as the health minister in, in, in 1983 in Australia and having this kind of wave of unknown uh, coming at him but with also the kind of personal kind of crisis of, of, of him uh, dealing with that and it's always been something that has, has stood out to me because I think that's an important thing to remember as well. And, and Janice kind of touched on it, you know, the incredible kind of bravery and the burden that leaders take um, during during times of crisis is uh, phenomenal and is inspiring for, you know, I, I believe, you know, in all kind of aspects of leadership, but, you know, certainly in, in arts at the moment, historically, you know, in, in times to come, people will look back at this time. Kate, any thoughts from you? Yeah, no, I think really, really well said. Um, you know, there's many, I mean, just so many 
artists and so many that you you know you can't name who have just shown that sort of ability to change and be dynamic I mean I think I think something that really is quite you know touching at the moment and quite sad is the whole team at Rising and for those who may not know but Melbourne's festival Rising you know two years in the making lots of artists the way you know and we've seen arts organizations put on events and they failed because of this situation. But I think it right now and the way that they responded to the fact, the graciousness of how they sent out the messages, you know, there was no sort of like, oh, my God, it's game over, you know, how unfortunate. It was just sort of like even the act of putting on a festival that never gets done is really important and it engages all these artists and it gave, you know, I just think, Maybe because I'm in Melbourne and I'm locked down, and all those tickets I bought for Rising has right, me too. You and me together cancelled, but um, <laughs> it really resonates. I think. But that's you know. about hope, isn't yeah. it? And that's yeah. what Janice was saying. We need um, the energy, and we need hope. And I think it's going to come from our sector and our artists and our community because we do that really well. And I just probably, and I know that Emma wanted to ask a question and that's probably going to be the last question, but just two things on that because I think there are lots of people doing festivals and working really hard towards it and then knowing that it doesn't, it doesn't disappear. There is, it will leave a trace, a different trace. But I think the thing that I have loved seeing, and that's about leaders within our community on a journey, I've been so amazed and heartened by the response of our community to situations like rising. We've all got an example of that, things that you plan for, things that you've had to react. And I think that has really reinforced, you know, we are part of a pretty amazing tribe, you know, and I think um, we need to get that message out across because it matters so I think that's about leadership and I, I was very, very fortunate to be invited to the 10-year anniversary of the West Farmers Indigenous Leadership Session, the last one before we went into lockdown and I think I was one of two non-Indigenous people so it was really interesting. We look at the Zoom and we look at the diversity and inclusion in our spaces and who's talking and who's not. I suppose I've reflected on that but I did go back to slowing down and time and there were two things, the introduction of where we are and what our context the context imbues us with is something that I've really learned. And it's, um, it's just a little thing, um, but it makes a big difference. And it's part of that slowing down. So I suppose I've learned from this young leaders group. And I thought, why don't we do that when we go to big conferences? Why don't we do that when we go around the world? Why don't we do that? So there are little things that I've learned from emerging leaders that I think that's going to help us in slowing things down and connecting all these things that we think really matter. So just a little observation. Emma, I'm going to push back to you as our last question. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And I just wanted to um, thank the panel so much for the comments. I've written down a bunch of notes. I acknowledge, Janice, it's funny that you talked about being an arts enabler, and that's actually the way that I introduced myself in my role at Guildhouse as a CEO, not an artist as a, I don't have an artist background, but my special skill is being an artist enabler and that's what I tend to introduce myself as. Um, and Sebastian, you talked about um, the fact that artists, you know, are, are incredibly resilient, they embody resilience. And I, I often find myself saying actually that artists are the bravest and most resilient people um, that I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. And I think at this time we sort of, that that is something that we uh, want to embolden and it is, it's absolutely a necessity in lots of respects as well. 
And I don't want to be a bummer and, and sort of bring things down a notch because hope is so important in this conversation. But I am very aware that there is a, a great weariness amongst all of the sector and particularly for independent artists that are facing sustained challenges. And this is COVID sort of shot a new spotlight on some endemic issues within the sector. I can speak particularly to Australia, but I know that's not unique to Australia. How do we and how do you, would you, if you'd be open to commenting on each uh, from each of you, how do we really make sure that we can centre artists at our the centre of recovery? How can we place them in that space when we know that they are feeling really quite ground down, both systemically but also individually? I'd, I'd love a hopeful response in a somewhat despondent kind of a question, but I think it's a real one, and it's one that we really grapple with every day in our conversations with artists. Can I jump in on that one while everyone's thinking? One of the things I saw that the Maya Foundation did was rather than wanting an outcome from a grant to support artists, they just said, apply for $5,000 and there's no outcome, you know, and it's actually one of the biggest statements of we value what we do, we want you just to keep going. So I think we've become very outcome driven um, and, you know, I can we, we can all think about how do we get artists to um, make new work, pivot digitally, um, you know, share work, you know, from artist to artist or whatever it is. But, you know, sometimes someone just saying, we love what you do, just mm-hmm. keep going. You know? <laughs> I, I wonder seen. how we can do that a bit more as organisations. I have some hopeful contribution to make. A couple of things. One from Canada um, is that a lot of the income supports that we put in place to support everyone who had lost work in a range of sectors um, during the pandemic, um, it really highlighted the self-employed gig economy, call it what you will, artists fall into a lot of those categories. And it has absolutely energized a, a conversation that's been brewing for a while in Canada around a guaranteed annual income that you know we have to actually create a way that everyone is guaranteed at least a minimum income every year and you know we're quite a we're quite a liberal country as as i think you know so uh that's one thing that i found inspiring out of all of this and the voices of artists and other self-employed people but artists were very very present in that conversation the other is, and you alluded, you touched on it a bit, Rebecca, um, you know, there doesn't need to be an outcome. I have been incredibly inspired and encouraged by how, and Cade referred to it, a few of the um, panelists have referred to the generosity of our donors and our supporters and the way they have stepped up and understood that sometimes one of the things, for example, I spent days, weeks with my team, I asked donors who held endowments for specific kinds of arts programs. We had to make over 300 phone calls to say, you know that your endowment supports dance, but we can't do our dance program. Would you allow your endowment earnings to be used for general operations? Over 80% said yes. Just keep your doors open. Like that's the most important thing. So I think the hopefulness is out there in a bit of an education for our supporters that they can sometimes get a little blinkered, but they got a big wake-up call. What would the world be like without the arts that they care so much about? And they are ready 
to help. So take that message of being less restrictive in the way you give and support artists. And let's now run with that as an ongoing message to our donors. So I'd love to just jump in there, Janice. That's a really good point. I mean, only just speaking of experience in the in the small sector of remote communities, but I lightly touched on the sort of redefining what an art centre does for a community. And that has actually, through a little bit of persistence, has altered some of the support and the funding mechanisms that go to those communities. So now we're seeing communities receive funding through health departments, from territory governments and state governments. We're seeing um, philanthropists um, wanting to invest in cultural maintenance and not just buy paintings. And I mean, this is this is taken, this is just specifically for the communities that I'm working with, but it really has helped redefine the purpose and the fulfillment that art achieves in, in people's lives. You know, so art as a tool for creating better levels of school attendance in remote communities. And, you know, Two years ago, three years ago, if you tried convincing truancy officers in the education department of the Northern Territory government that art will make people go to school, they would just, you know, they would just look at you blankly. And so, I mean, I don't know how much that has affected and maybe Sebastian or Rebecca might be able to talk about that in a sort of bigger context of other, I mean, I'm just talking about the remote communities that I've worked with, but it really has allowed some funders to see a new definition of the purpose of art in their in their life or the way that they fund it. Okay, I'm just going to add one quick thing before the others jump in. I totally agree, and um, there's many paths in to ultimately support. But, you know, for many years we've said to our donors, imagine a, a world without art. Imagine your days without music and dance and and guess what they just got to experience that for a year and a half and the messages i'm getting is how much they miss it let's not waste this opportunity to say remember what it was like when you couldn't experience art well that's our daily reality that's so many artists daily reality the struggle to keep arts alive and let's not waste this opportunity i'm getting passionate for 4.40 in the morning. Uh, I think this is great to hear, 4.30 in the morning. Sebastian, is there any last bit that you wanted to add to that one? Yeah, I mean, I've just found it fascinating sort of picking up from what the previous uh, panellists have sort of said about about the sort of societal awareness of, of that importance. And, and one kind of um, benchmark for, for that uh, for me has been the Australian media which has traditionally, of course, been, you know, very critical of arts funding, very critical of money going to, to uh, art. But I think that um, even, even in that, that, that kind of space, there has been this kind of acknowledgement of lack and of loss, particularly around institutions and festivals into other art forms as well, but even into museums. And I think a, a, a wider kind of sense of, of the sort of, you know, general public that might, you know, sometimes question why, why art is being funded to the tune that it's being funded to. Um, there's been some kind of sense, you know, in, in the wider kind of ether of, of exactly that thing. Oh, you know, now we're sort of realising um, the loss, the loss of, of that kind of opportunity. And so I think it is a unique opportunity to, to sort of leverage off and, and um, 
but also too, I think on, on the other side, sort of touching on what you were saying earlier, Rebecca, um, for us, you know, working, um, you know, let's just say in, under the broad term of arts administrators, I think um, in return, the way that we've been conducting our business, particularly in relationship to artists, you know, needs to shift in some kind of ways, this kind of rationalization and this kind of need for KPIs and trying to sort of box artists into stuff that is making our lives easier as arts administrators, you know, it fitting into an acquittal and everything being neat. You know, we're not dealing with neatness, you know, we're dealing with people at the edge of chaos, you know, work, working with this kind of stuff that's happening in the world. So um, um, I think it's sort of reshaping um, things across the board. That is a really great one to end on, Emma. I think you're right. We can sound glorious and joyous, but, you know, this is this is hard yards. And I think Janice needs to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to let you go. I would particularly like to thank you all for speaking tonight. It has been really great. Thank you very much for convening this fabulous session and this series. Keep doing the good work that you're doing. I think the take-home message for me from all of this is there are things that we've learned. There are things that we want to take. We can't do it on our own. So let's support each other. And that's across borders, it's across countries, it's across art forms, to continue to reinforce the value of arts and culture in a vibrant, dynamic, exciting place to live and work. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.